heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. The world seems to be going mad. And it feels like we are caught in the eye of a terrible storm, spinning so fast that we can hardly make sense of what is going on, and there is no way to get free of it. That is what I'm going to talk about today, the many parts of that storm that is swirling around us, and if we can't get off, how will we be able to survive it? Welcome to The Voice of a Nation. I'm your host, Ilana Friedman, sitting in today for our favorite radio man, Malcolm Out Loud. There seems to be no end to the craziness. Here's one example. Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has been leading his once free country into tyranny and collective insanity. When the truckers came peacefully to Ottawa to protest the COVID mandates, instead of talking to them and hearing their grievances, as one does in a civilized society, He arrested them and tied up the capital city for many weeks. And the Canadian province of British Columbia has just been given permission to launch a new three-year program that will allow Canadians who are 18 and older to possess up to two and a half grams of opioids, cocaine, meth, or ecstasy. How many people do you suppose will die before this law is abandoned in 2026. Last year, British Columbia set a record for drug overdose deaths when more than 2,200 people OD'd and died. Did you know that toxic drugs are now the leading cause of death for people between 19 and 39 and the fourth highest cause overall in British Columbia? And now they're making it legal. But Vancouver's mayor welcomes the experiment. He said it will, quote, remove police from the lives of drug users and instead connect them to a growing array of effective health care services, unquote. Good luck with that. There is no simple answer to addiction, not for alcohol and not for drugs. And making drugs like meth and ecstasy legal is sheer insanity. Now, let's talk about guns. Canada doesn't have a Second Amendment, and Trudeau has now proposed the banning of all handguns for private citizens in Canada. He said, quote, We need only to look south of the border to know that if we do not take action firmly and rapidly, it gets worse and worse and more difficult to counter, unquote. Well, of course, he's referring to us, but his solutions are draconian and are not likely to help. He also said, other than using firearms for sport shooting and hunting, there is no reason anyone in Canada should need guns in their everyday lives. Unquote. I suppose he has decided that self-protection is not an argument for gun ownership. He must have forgotten the adage, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. That's not saying anything bad about the police, but they can't be everywhere all the time. 
And when you're on your own and facing death at the hands of a person with a gun, you'd better have a weapon of your own, and it had better be a gun. And by the way, I'll bet Trudeau has armed guards to protect him all of the time. This isn't anything new for Trudeau. Two years ago, he announced that he was banning more than 1,500 models of firearms, including AR-15s. He also announced that owners of these guns would have a two-year amnesty period to come into compliance with these prohibitions. Then, when that order was due to expire in April, the government announced that the amnesty would be extended until October 2023. They said that doing so will give them more time to put in place a mandatory buyback program for the firearms. In other words, the government will require that owners of the forbidden guns turn in their weapons for which they will receive some kind of compensation. But what kind of compensation is there when you're faced with a home invasion and you have no way to defend yourself and your family? And now a proposed new gun control law is being considered in Canada that would take the subject of gun ownership to a new level by making it illegal to import, purchase, sell, or transfer handguns. Handguns. It would also strip firearms licenses from those convicted of domestic violence or stalking. That seems fair. It would increase criminal penalties for gun smuggling and trafficking that too, and it would create a new red flag law that allow courts to require those considered a danger to themselves and others to surrender their firearms to law enforcement. But there's a danger to that because who decides whether a person is a danger to themselves or others? In 2020, Canada's homicide rate rose to its highest level in 15 years. Police reported 743 homicides across the country of 38 million people. The homicide rate of 1.95 deaths per 100,000 people is far lower than the homicide rate in the U.S., which was, in 2020, 7.8 deaths per 100,000. So why am I talking about Canada? This is the United States. Well, because we are watching a country, a neighbor, once free, that is just one step ahead of us. We're watching in real time as Canada slips into tyranny with barely a word of complaint. The government tells them what they can and what they can't do, and it seems they will comply willingly. So here we are in the United States watching it and seeing our own government moving in the same direction. Even though we have constitutional guarantees that are supposed to protect our freedoms. We are being ordered to take vaccines or lose our jobs, wear our masks or we can't fly on commercial airlines or go to school or ride the bus. And now Congress is debating how to take our guns away from us and limit our access to self-protection. Historically, this has always been the first step to tyranny. Here is what the tyrants themselves have said. Adolf Hitler said, quote, The most foolish mistake we could possibly make would be to allow the subject races to possess arms. Germany initiated gun control in 1938. And from 1939 to the end of World War II in 1945, more than 12 million people were systematically murdered by the Nazi party, 
including six million Jews in what is now known as the Holocaust. In China, Mao Zedong said, quote, all political power comes from the barrel of a gun. The Communist Party must command all the guns. That way, no guns can ever be used to command the party, unquote. And in 1935, China implemented gun control, and nine years later, Mao began rounding up and murdering 20 million Chinese people, some of them political dissidents, many of them just educated people, all of whom Mao considered dangerous to the Communist Party. The Soviet Union established gun control in 1929, and from that year until 1953, some 20 million Russians were murdered by their own government. Cambodia initiated gun control in 1956, and from 1975 to 1977, two years, one million educated people were assassinated. And so on. There are many examples of this in history. And now we are living in a turning point in our own history, where we must decide as a people whether we will submit to the tyranny of gun control which leads to ultimate tyranny, or whether we will choose to remain a free people committed to defending ourselves against tyranny. When Barack Obama was president, although he claimed to support the Constitution, in fact, he had the title of constitutional law professor at the University of Chicago Law School, although he seemed to have a distinct dislike of our Constitution. He once called it, quote, a charter of negative liberties. It says what the states can't do to you, says what the federal government can't do to you, but doesn't say what the federal government or state to government must do on your behalf, unquote. In his final days in the Oval Office, he signed several arguably unconstitutional executive orders relating to gun control. And in order to justify them, he once told a rape victim, quote, there are always questions as to whether or not having a firearm in the home protects you from that kind of violence. What is also true, he said, is there is always the possibility that that firearm in a home leads to a tragic accident. You have to be pretty well trained in order to fire a weapon against somebody who is assaulting you and catches you by surprise, unquote. That is as insulting a remark as it was a non-answer to a serious question. Did he think we were so stupid and incapable that we cannot defend ourselves in the event of an attack on us in our own home? Apparently, he thought so. And here's another thing. Having a firearm in the home, safely stored but ready to access in an emergency, doesn't mean that it will ever be used. Just having it in the home is a source of confidence and security for a gun owner. And if a potential attacker or home invader knows that there are gun owners in the neighborhood, the likelihood of an attack there is somewhat lessened. Did you know that the first viable handgun was called the Colt Peacemaker? For a reason? The Second Amendment was written as a right, not a privilege a right that is guaranteed by the Constitution to support the security of a free state from tyranny, both foreign and domestic.
our founding fathers put the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights for a reason. They put it second for a reason, right after freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of worship. In a 1787 letter to James Madison, Thomas Jefferson wrote this, quote, What country can preserve its liberties if their rulers are not warned from time to time that their people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms, unquote. In another letter, this one to Jay Cartwright, Jefferson wrote, quote, The Constitution of most of our states assert that all power is inherent in the people that is their right and duty to be at all times armed, unquote. But our leaders in Washington today seem to disagree. They seem to believe that gun laws, gun control laws, and serious ones are absolutely necessary to secure the safety of civilians in our country. They insist that the assault weapon ban that was passed in 1994 actually created a big drop in mass shooting death. That's what Bill Clinton said. When the ban expired, he said, they rose again. But that's a bit of a stretch because according to the 1994 law, which barred the manufacture, transfer, and possession of about 118 firearm models and all magazines holding over 10 rounds. After that law was enacted, the decline in gun violence, according to numerous studies that were made, the decline was slight not the big drop that Bill Clinton claimed. And after the ban ended, the number of shootings went up slightly. In a key 2004 study that was commissioned by the U.S. Justice Department, researcher Christopher Coper wrote this, Should the ban be renewed, the bar's effect on gun violence are likely to be small at best and perhaps too small for reliable measurements, unquote. Well, our founding fathers had a lot to say about the right of Americans to be armed, and here are only a few of their statements on the subject. Quote, a free people ought to be armed, unquote, George Washington. Quote, the great object is that every man be armed, everyone who is able may have a gun, unquote, Patrick Henry. Quote, are we at last brought to such humiliating and debasing degradation that we cannot be trusted with arms for our own defense? Where is the difference between having our arms in possession or under our direction and having them under the management of Congress? If our defense be the real object of having those arms, in whose hands can they be trusted with more propriety or equal safety to us as in our own hands?" Unquote. Patrick Henry, quote, the best we can hope for concerning the people at large is that they may be properly armed, unquote. Alexander Hamilton, quote, that the said constitution shall never be construed to authorize Congress to infringe the just liberty of the press or the rights of conscience or to prevent the people of the United States who are peaceable citizens from keeping their own arms, unquote. Samuel Adams, quote, and what country can preserve its liberties if its rulers are not warned from time to time that this people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants, unquote. 
Thomas Jefferson, quote, the strongest reason for the people to retain the right to keep and bear arms is, as a last resort, to protect themselves against tyranny in government, unquote. Thomas Jefferson. There are always people, however, who want to claim that the Second Amendment refers to a well-organized militia, and that doesn't mean every man or every citizen of the United States. But here's what George Mason had to say about that. George Mason was a founding father and a delegate to the United States Constitutional Convention of 1787, and he said, I ask, sir, what is the militia? It is the whole people, except for a few public officials, he said. And maybe that clears things up a bit. Over the last quarter hour or so, We've been talking about tyranny, the tyranny of government, and how the government, our government, is moving toward imposing a tyranny on us unlike anything America has ever seen before. After the break, we're going to talk about another kind of tyranny. It's called following the science and what it really means. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud, and you're listening to The Voice of a Nation. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology, designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back to The Voice of a Nation. I'm your host, Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud. We're always being told to follow the science. They told us that 
when the COVID solutions coming down from the all-knowing Dr. Fauci and the CDC and the UN World Health Organization, when they were all just a lick and a promise, scientists holding their fingers in the air to see which way the wind was blowing before they told us what to do next to stay safe. The way to stay safe, they said, you must follow the rules. But their rules were always changing. And they never told us the truth, the real truth. The truth was that they really didn't know. In other words, they lied to us. And with their lies, they began to impose another kind of tyranny on the American people. Lockdowns, mandatory vaccinations, masks for everybody, even toddlers, and a modified shutdown of the country. It is no doubt true that the vaccines may have saved millions of lives in this country and around the world. But it is also true that the vaccines may actually have also killed people, otherwise healthy people, who took the vaccine and then died from things like enlarged hearts and blood clots. The science was incomplete. And it still is incomplete. So how many of us know people who didn't take the vaccine, who instead took things like zinc and vitamin D and vitamin C and melatonin, or who didn't take anything at all, but still never got COVID. And yet the government will fire our soldiers who won't take the vaccine and the pilots and the teachers and the nurses and the employees who won't take the vaccine. But the science is still incomplete and there are no unequivocal answers. There never were. When the government decides what you should do, what medicines you should take, and what medicines you must not take, and tell you you must stay at home and not go anywhere, that you must not be with your family on holidays and birthdays, that your children may not go to school, then you are only a stone's throw from a kind of tyranny that our founding fathers tried to protect us from. It is not okay that our children are now suffering from a kind of PTSD from the lockdowns that prevented them from seeing their friends and going to school, that forced them to wear masks so that they couldn't read the faces of their teachers, and online lessons that lost the personal and social experience of being in a classroom environment with other people. And it's not okay that even though the science was far from perfect, we were forced to stay home. Restaurants were forced to close, some forever. And we were continually fed terrifying information about how dangerous the virus was. Even though that information was far from verified, and much of it was probably untrue. We were told to follow the science, but it wasn't science that they were giving us. It was fantasy, magic potions that they brewed up in secret and made up as they went along. And that, in the end, was criminal because it hurt millions of people, many of whom were not at risk, and many more who were ready to make life choices that disagreed with that so-called science and refused to take the vaccine or follow the rules. It resulted in lockdowns that hurt some people more than the virus would have. And that is a kind of tyranny that is unacceptable in this country. America is a free country and Americans fight back. 
We don't stand for tyranny. We won't stand for a government that refuses to respect us and allow us the freedom of choice that the Constitution guarantees to us. Now, I want to change subjects rather dramatically and tell you a story about a people who did fight back. They were facing what may have been annihilation, and they refused to stand down. They did fight back, and they won. June 5th is the anniversary of one of the most extraordinary military conflicts in history. It became known as the Six-Day War, and it began like this. In 1967, Syria, Egypt, and Jordan were getting ready to invade Israel. Their combined armies had approximately 465,000 troops, nearly 2,900 tanks, and more than 810 airplanes, all prepared to attack Israel at once from all sides, and they were staging near Israel's borders. In an address to the UN General Assembly about seven months earlier, Israel's Foreign Minister Golda Meir invited Arab leaders to meet with Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion to negotiate a peace settlement. But five days later, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser said that his country would never recognize Israel and that peace talks were absolutely out of the question. The Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, but its leader, Yasser Arafat, called for Israel's destruction. He supported frequent and terrible terrorist attacks on Israeli civilians. In 1965 alone, there were 35 terrorist attacks against Israeli civilians and 41 the following year. In just the first four months of 1967, there were 37 more. And the targets were always civilians. That was the way of the PLO. Then, in the north of Israel, the Syrian army used the heights of the Golan to rain down mortar shells on the Israeli farms and villages below. But the UN did nothing. Nasser's goal was simple. He said, quote, the national aim is the eradication of Israel, unquote. The Soviet Union had told Egypt that Israel was amassing troops along the northern border to prepare for an attack on Syria. That information was false, but Nasser was ready to believe it. So on May 15th, Israel's Independence Day, Nasser began to send Egyptian troops into the Sinai. On May 16th, he ordered the UN emergency force that was stationed in the Sinai in order to keep the peace. He ordered them to withdraw from Sinai completely. And like good little soldiers, they left. No argument there. Then, on May 18th, the Voice of the Arabs radio station broadcast this. As of today, there no longer exists an international emergency force to protect Israel. The sole method we shall apply against Israel is total war, which will result in the extermination of Zionist existence. Unquote. By May 18th, Syrian troops were already staging along the Golan Heights, and Syrian Defense Minister Hafez Assad, who is now the president of Syria, 
announced this. He said, quote, our forces are now entirely ready not only to repulse the aggression, but to initiate the act of liberation itself and to explode the Zionist presence in the Arab homeland and to enter into a battle of annihilation, unquote. The Arab nations were happily anticipating the coming massacre of Jews and the end of the Jewish state. Nasser made it crystal clear. He said, quote, our basic objective will be the, the destruction of Israel. We will not accept any coexistence with Israel, unquote. On May 22nd, four days later, Egypt closed the Straits of Tehran to all Israeli shipping and all other ships going to and from its southern port of Eilat, which was Israel's only supply route to and from Asia. And under international law, this was an act of war. Israel had no choice but to prepare a preemptive strike against the enemies that were planning its total destruction. Now, Israel was facing armies in the north and the south and the east, and access to its southern port was closed. And the Israeli government expected this war to be so terrible that they prepared mass graves for tens of thousands of Israeli victims in the Tel Aviv parks. The specter of the Holocaust was rising again. Remember, it was only 22 years after the end of World War II and the Holocaust, and the memory of that Holocaust was still fresh and raw. But Israel refused to take defeat without a fight. So early on the morning of June 5th, 1967, the IDF launched a surprise attack on Egypt. Some 200 Israeli airplanes took off and flew west over the Mediterranean. In order to avoid radar detection, the Israeli pilots flew as low as six feet over the water for over 70 miles at over the speed of sound. Once over Egypt, they attacked 18 different airfields, and in under three hours, they had destroyed roughly 90% of the Egyptian Air Force before it could even get off the ground. And by the end of the day, on June 5th, Israeli pilots had won full control of the Middle Eastern skies. But there was still fighting on the ground, fierce fighting. There was a ground war in Egypt, which began that morning on June 5th, and at the same time that Israel was destroying the Egyptian Air Force, Israeli tanks and infantry were storming across Israel's southern border and into the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip. Egyptian forces put up a fight, but it didn't take long before they were forced to retreat with severe casualties. At the same time, on the same day, a second front opened up in the divided city of Jerusalem. Back then, Jerusalem was split in two, with the eastern half under the control of Jordan and the western half in Jerusalem. Jordan launched an unprovoked attack on the Israeli part of Jerusalem. Jordanian soldiers began firing into the Israeli side of the city, first with small arms, then with mortars, even though Jordan's King Hussein had been assured by Israel that they would not attack any country 
unless it attacked them first. But now Jerusalem itself was under attack, and the Jordanians were firing at whatever they could hit. Israel launched a devastating counterattack on East Jerusalem and the West Bank. First Israeli troops captured the Jordanian fortifications at Ammunition Hill, and then the entire old city of Jerusalem and the Western Wall, the Kotel, where they prayed for the first time in 19 years. The last phase of the fighting took place along Israel's northeastern border with Syria. On June 9th, following an intense aerial bombardment, Israeli tanks and infantry advanced on the heavily fortified region of Syria called the Golan Heights, which they captured the next day. On June 10, 1967, a United Nations-brokered ceasefire took effect and the six-day war came to an abrupt end. It was later estimated that in that short time, in six days, some 20,000 Arabs and 800 Israelis had died in just 132 hours of fighting. Israel's six-day war amazed the world, and for a short time, Israel was a global hero. The leaders of the Arab states were in shock, stunned by their dramatic defeat. In less than one week, Israel, a country that was only 19 years old, had fought back three Arab military forces and nearly tripled in size. In just six days, Israel had captured the entire Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip from Egypt, the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria. Most important, it had returned the old city of Jerusalem to Israel and the Jews, and the Jews who had been forbidden access to their holy places since 1948 when it was in Jordanian hands, were once again able to return and pray at the western wall of the Temple Mount, the holiest place in Judaism. The Six-Day War united Jerusalem, but it did not bring peace. It did, however, bring a sense of joy and accomplishment to the Israeli people, and it brought a few years of relative quiet to this volatile and unpredictable country. Ultimately, though, war returned to Israel, as it seems to always do when your enemies want you dead and your country destroyed. Now, since the Six-Day War, Israel has suffered several more wars. In 1991, Israel was the recipient of Scud missiles, courtesy of Saddam Hussein. But Israel was not allowed to participate in that war and defend itself. It was forbidden by the U.S. government. 39 Scud missiles landed in Tel Aviv and Haifa, though, and a total of 74 people died as a result of the attacks. But the wars were still not over. In 2002, during the Second Intifada, the IDF launched a large-scale operation known as Operation Defensive Shield following the Passover massacre at the Park Hotel in Netanya. Hamas claimed responsibility for that attack in which 30 Israeli civilians were killed while they celebrated the holiday of Passover. The main objective 
of Israel's response was to strike Palestinian terrorist infrastructures and put an end to the wave of terrorist attacks against Israeli citizens, and it was largely accomplished. And then there were the several short battles with Hamas in Gaza after a barrage of hundreds of rockets rained down on civilian population centers throughout Israel. The wars Israel is compelled to fight are not her choice, but Israel does not run from a threat. Maybe we could learn a lot from that tiny country half a world away. Now, after the break, I want to tell you about several bits of news from around the world about China and how it is falling apart from inside even as it threatens the world beyond its borders. And I want to tell you some interesting things about Ukraine and Russia, about a plot to assassinate Putin, and the difference between the news we hear and what is really going on there, about the successes of the Ukrainian armed forces against the Russians, and about the Russian soldiers themselves and the equipment that they have to use, and what is happening to their morale. And finally, I want to talk about the primary elections that have been going on and are still going on, and why they are so important and why we need to pay attention. We're going to talk about all that and more right after the break. Surely if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. So you can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Welcome back to the Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud. Earlier in the show, we talked about tyranny in Canada and in the United States and what we need to be concerned about. And then I told you the story about the most incredible war in history, the Six-Day War. But now I want to talk to you about some other things, not history, but history in the making. What's happening in China and what's happening in Ukraine and Russia? 
These are history in the making. And it's important that we understand what is happening in the world and how it affects us. Let's talk about China first. China is in an impossible situation, and I don't believe that Xi Jinping and the people around him really understand what is going on or don't want to understand. Maybe that, that's it. But they are doing things that are so counterproductive, not only to the world, but to China itself. You see, China is in the process of self-destruction. And I don't believe it sees it. I don't think that it sees how dangerous their policies and their plans are for the future of their country. There's a lot going on in China. Its economy is imploding. They have been carrying out despicable attacks on their own people because of the threat that they see from COVID. They have been carrying out a zero COVID policy, which means that if a city of many millions has one case of COVID, the entire city goes into lockdown. And lockdown in China doesn't mean just staying in your house on the honor system or maybe getting a ticket when you go out. It means being locked in your house, sometimes sealed in your house physically. The doors and windows are sealed, so you cannot go out. You can't buy food. You can't buy medicines. And you must stay in your home until the Chinese Communist Party says it's okay to come out. Or in some cases, they will put you in a massive quarantine center and give your home to somebody else. What's going on in China has been outrageous and so cruel. And yet that's only a small part of what's going on there and what's hurting China so badly. The fact that people are locked in their homes means that industry is not functioning properly. They don't have workers. And it means that all the systems that keep an economy running are failing. When people can't go to work, Products can't be made, they can't be shipped, they can't be purchased, there's no money coming in. And there's more. Before COVID made its way out of its laboratory in Wuhan and burst onto the world with a fury that shut every country down to one extent or another. Before that happened, China was on a building boom and they built high-rise apartments in many of the major cities in China. But after COVID, there was no market for these buildings, which were very expensive and had a great deal of government support. But because of COVID, because whole cities were shut down and people couldn't move around, so many people were not working and they didn't have money. So there was no market. In the end, these brand new empty buildings had to be destroyed. Now China has other problems as well. They have a workforce that can't go to work in many places still. And they have industry that is not working to capacity, not close. And there's more. Every summer they have floods. And last year, these floods destroyed many of the fields that grow the crops 
that provide the Chinese people with food. So when the Chinese people were locked up by their own government, there were food shortages and the people in their apartments, locked in their apartments, were starving. So the combination of the COVID crisis that China's CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has created, as well as the natural forces that are creating food shortages, flooding people out of their homes, and destroying the farms that produce the food. And yet, China, led by Xi Jinping, have not forgotten their great dream to be the center of the world. The Middle Kingdom is what they used to call it. And their great victory will be assuming the role of leader of the world, replacing the United States. They're doing this in a number of ways. They've been doing it for years by stealing our technology and building up their own technological industries, which are now suffering because of the bad management of the CCP. But never mind, by ignoring the crises that they have created at home, they are nevertheless still trying to expand their reach around the world. They are aiming to take over Taiwan, and every day, or almost every day, they run aerial sorties over Taiwan airspace in order to show their power and to harass them. And they are attacking India on its northern border. But they're also looking at the South Pacific. They have already made agreement with South, several South Pacific islands. They're looking toward the South China Sea and owning all of it. Even though it is an international waterway and one of the most heavily traveled commercial pathways around Asia, the Chinese are exploring and overfishing the waters off this coast of South America, and they are exploring the Arctic, and they have already made huge inroads in Africa and the Middle East and Asia and even Europe. What China has not been able to see is that their strategic path is aiming for implosion. How are they going to manage both the internal crises with their plans to take over the world? How can they do it? I'm not sure they can. And certainly, if they are not strong inside their country, they are going to lose their ability to do all the things they expect to do outside their country to essentially capture the world. But the fact that their strategic plan is broken because their country is broken does not seem to be a part of their thinking. And so they are striving in every way they can to do both, somehow, to manage the crises in their country, which they are doing very badly, and to also conquer the world. It's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds, and it's going to be very dangerous because they believe that they can, in fact, take over the world in spite of what's going on internally. We'll have to wait and see, but it's a good guess that at some point something is going to break and China is going to face a major, major crisis that it cannot hide or overcome. We'll see. Now, let's talk about Ukraine. 
we're getting an awful lot of news about how the Russians are succeeding and how the Ukrainians are beginning to fail and are about to lose their country. That's interesting, and I hope that isn't true, although that is what the mainstream media are saying, and maybe it's true, but the mainstream media doesn't have a sterling record for reporting accurately. The intelligence that I'm getting is very different. What I'm hearing is that the Russians, even though they are seeming to make progress in their conquest of Ukraine, I'm hearing a different story. I'm hearing that the Ukrainians are succeeding in ways that are both creative and effective. They are fighting a war that is more of a guerrilla war than one would expect in a war that uses airplanes and tanks. I'm hearing that the Ukrainians are not trying to take back Crimea, but that they want to hold the line at the Crimean border. I'm hearing that at the end of May, they took out the 13th senior general. This one was an Air Force general, and they shot his plane out of the sky. I'm hearing that the Ukrainians are fighting a battle of strategic retreat so that they can regroup and then attack. This is a good strategy in this war where the enemy is a demoralized army that has been supplied with aging equipment that doesn't work and often leaves them stranded and they're not getting the support they need that soldiers rely on from the command in Russia. How long can an army like this last? Maybe the Russian logic is that by demoralizing the troops, it makes them meaner and better soldiers. That sounds Russian, but it certainly doesn't sound like good strategy. And here's another story. I didn't read it in the news, but I did hear it through my intelligence sources that there was, in fact, an assassination attempt on Putin. That's a good idea, but it didn't work. Uh, the assassination was foiled, and Putin is still walking around and giving orders that hurt everyone but himself, it seems. And the report resurfaced that, in fact, he does have cancer, and he is, in fact, dying because his cancer is inoperable. But we don't know what his prognosis is, and so we are still in the dark about the future, about his future and how it impacts us. The real question is, if he is at the end of his rope, and he may be, will that motivate him to make one final huge gesture for Mother Russia and against Ukraine to push the button on a nuclear attack. And if that happens, then all bets are off and the game changes in a heartbeat. It is not unlikely that such a move on the part of Putin will trigger World War III. Because with such a gesture, with such a move, it is possible that players like 
Iran, for example, and North Korea may take it as a signal that they too can launch their nukes. And then World War III is not just around the corner. World War III is here, and we're in it. That's pretty dire, and I'm not saying it's going to happen. It may never happen. It may certainly not happen in our lifetime, but it's a possibility. And we know that there are a lot of loose cannons in Iran, in North Korea, maybe elsewhere, and so it's something we must consider. It is a possibility. It is a hope that Putin will not be so foolish as to launch a nuclear attack on Ukraine, no matter what his impulses and no matter what his physical condition or his life expectancy is. What gives me hope is that the Ukrainian military is courageous, they are far from ready to give up, and they're bringing everything they have to the battlefield. And if the intelligence I've received is correct, the Russian army is not doing nearly as well as the media makes out. So hold on to your hats, folks. I think we're still in for quite a ride. Now, in the United States, we are still in the middle of primaries. And actually, these primaries go on until September. This week, on June 7th, there are seven primaries. And on the 14th, there are several more. The last states to have primaries are in September. And the very last states to have their primary are Massachusetts on September 6th, and then Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and Delaware on September 13th. I never did understand why those states have their primary so late, because it makes it so difficult for the candidates. If you win the primary, you only have less than two months to campaign against your real opponent, and that's tough. So why are the primaries so important? Why are they so important this year? And the answer is that they are probably more important this year than they have been ever in the history of our American elections. Never before has our country been so divided, except just before the Civil War, and never before have the differences between the left and the right been so stark. But that's not what the primaries are about. In the primary elections, we are voting either for Democrats or Republicans or third party, perhaps, but we don't get to vote for the other party in most cases. So the question for voters in the primaries is this, which candidate best reflects my views on what I want this country to be and what I want my representative in Congress to be. And that's a big deal. So choose your candidate carefully, my friends, and go and vote. Make sure you vote on the day of your primary and make sure that your vote counts. Because in this election, 
in this upcoming election, every vote will count. So it's important that we all show up and be counted. <laughs> there will be a big push this year, as there already has been in the early primaries, for special attention to the voting process to make sure that there is no voting fraud attendant to this election. Of course, the chances are there will be some, but we do not want a repeat of the 2020 elections. But this election is so important that election integrity is absolutely essential. Well, our time is up again as the hour speeds by, and I want to thank you all for spending it with me. The world is full of interesting stories and stories that are difficult sometimes to understand. So if I helped you to understand any of it, that's what I'm here for. And I'm glad you came. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for your favorite radio host, Malcolm Out Loud. You've been listening to the voice of a nation on the America Out Loud Network.